Hi everyone, my name is Haley. And this is Laura. And welcome to The Body Pod. Well, thank you so much for joining. I'm so excited to have you on, Kristen. It's a um, pleasure. I'm gonna have you do just a really quick intro mm. because I think you're new to all of my followers or most of my followers. Yeah. So if you wanna just give a quick little rundown and then we'll get right to the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm a psychophysiologist, so I conduct research to better understand the effect of sleep and circadian and uh, recovery behaviors and how they impact our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. So I really kind of study human resilience uh, and the determinants of human resilience. That's perfect. Yeah. And so you're with WHOOP. Yes. So I'm the vice president, principal science, uh, principal scientist uh, at WHOOP. And WHOOP is a physiological monitoring device. You wear it on your wrist and it collects a whole bunch of biometric data and then transforms those data to give you insight about how your body um, is adapting to external stress, um, how you sleep and how you're building cardiovascular and neuromuscular load. Okay. So, it's hey, so this is super fascinating because mm. I did a poll right when I had inv like invited you to do a live. And I was just curious about like how many people were familiar and what, it was mm. about 50% people, women knew about WHOOP and 50% didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and most of them knew about a wearable in general. So mm -hmm. most women had had like a Fitbit or Garmin uh, mm -hmm. uh, for the endurance world that, that follows me. But it's, yep. I, I think it's so interesting, the data that you can have and just everything that's come in the last few years, how far technology has come. And I'm like, why didn't I have this when I was doing Ironman racing? Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's crazy how little we actually knew about our body. Um, and we were competing, you know, and, and putting our body through huge amounts of load. You know, I mean, I was overtrained literally my entire U.S. playing career. I mean, there's no question about it. You know, like I, yeah. I can't even remember a day where my legs weren't like, cinder blocks so heavy um you know so and i just nutrition was definitely not on point like there's so many factors that were uh yeah just not not optimized by any means and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know there isn't a lot of research on women you know so we we're just all the principles that are being applied to to men were just trickling down to, to to women i mean i literally lifted like a football player in college you know i mean it was it was not you know, we just literally had the same programming as the men's football team and the men's basketball team. And, um, you know, and obviously we know now that, that we're not small men, right. To, to quote Stacey, Stacey Sims. Yes. I love it. Okay. So when we break this down, so we have, we have the whoop, we're talking about all of the data for those of you jumping on. So if we break down, like what it actually, like, what would you say the most important, if you could summarize the most important point of data that it gives us it, maybe that might be too hard maybe the the top one or maybe two of what you think that um that the whoop does best well it does a lot of things really well but I, I, there is a taxonomy right there are certain behaviors that um are good for all of us and that have the biggest impact on our mental, physical, emotional uh, functioning. And I would say that one behavior is, is probably sleep consistency. So the degree to which you stabilize your sleep-wake time predicts your physiological, psychological, kind of an emotional well-being. So you want to try to minimize that night-to-night -night variability. Um, night-to-night variability is going to impact, you know, if you think about it from the standpoint of, you know, things that we care about, performance variables for sure, but if you, if you think about fertility and, um, and 
adiposity and, you know, things that we're actively trying to uh, take control over, um, night-to-night variability is a direct path to, to those. So it's, um, it's an unbelievable opportunity because it's, for the most part, democratically available to all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we all can kind of make conscious choices of when we go to bed and we, when, we, when we wake up. And when we stabilize those things, we increase our melatonin production, we, um, you know, we uh, decrease our, our insulin, uh, we increase our insulin sensitivity, we reduce, our, you know, the, the chance that we might encounter metabolic disorders, uh, we do decrease adiposity, you know, our, our system just starts working uh, way more efficiently. Um, so there's definitely a, obviously a circadian component to, uh, to sleep-wake timing that's, that's really important. So I would say from a taxonomy standpoint, and we're really the only wearable to measure sleep consistency, and a lot of our research that we've done has used that metric alongside these psychological measures, and indeed it continues to surface as being the most salient um, and, and most predictive of, again, you know, these variables that we all really care about re- related to our health. Okay, so let's start with sleep. That I was going to have that down, but now that now that we've kind of brought it up, it is so fascinating because I think that we live in this culture that I think is starting to shift because more information is getting out about how you cannot skimp on sleep and not have it affect all of these other aspects of your life. But we've lived in this culture that kind of praises, you know, the hustler and that maybe you're getting like five or six hours and that's like a badge of honor Mm. um instead of like kind of shifting this this information now and being like no Mm. it's it's um you know for xyz it's it's terrible to not really get good sleep and expect everything else to be going really well physically and emotionally and all of that so as far as sleep goes when you say the um, have like the same sleep wake cycle, mm-hmm. like the same going to bed at the mm-hmm. same time each night, like what would you what would your non negotiables for good sleep be? Uh, well, definitely stabilizing sleep wake time. Um, the other, I think, huge factor is uh, stopping your eating, ending your your last meal, taking your last calorie, you know, two to three hours prior to when you intend to sleep. Mm-hmm. Really critical. Um, your body can't digest and sleep at the same time. To put it simply um you know you divert your your body will um you know basically bias toward uh digestion right it's going to take care of that first as a result you divert all of the resources that typically would be going toward uh recovery and regeneration toward you know just basically trying to digest your food so you you kind of um potentially can give up that um that you know really beautiful first uh, phase of sleep, which is slowly sleep, and where you get the, actually the biggest bolus of human growth hormone release. Um, and, you know, that's going to happen somewhere between kind of 11 and, and 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're actively digesting food or having to metabolize alcohol or um, have a lot of, or, or you basically, you know, bypass that 11 o'clock window and now you're in that 1 a.m., you're probably going to miss that bolus of, of human growth hormone. So, um, definitely ending, uh, stabilizing sleep wake time, um, ending that last meal. And I think the other piece that I think a lot of folks don't, don't, don't recognize is this relationship between, um, how we manage stress during the day and, and how that, um, impacts our sleep at night. So being super proactive in, in terms of how you're managing stress, uh, throughout the day is, is really critical. Um, and I think those folks who kind of wake up at that, you know, 1am or 2am, uh, 2.30am every, every night what's happening is you'll have a natural rise in cortisol um, at that time. And if you have not, if you kind of go to sleep already 
you know, revving high on cortisol, you're going to wake up at that 2 a.m. block every night because that cortisol has nowhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the, the, you know, the, the answer to that is, is definitely really trying to make sure that you're um, proactively mitigating stress throughout the day. You're not kind of building that stress accumulation which can, can impact your ability to fall asleep for sure. Um, but some folks are just so you know, tired that they fall asleep, but they invariably end up waking up at that 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Um, so cortisol can, can often be the culprit. And um, the, the answer to that is, is definitely managing um, your stress throughout the day. Um, the other piece is, you know, getting morning sunshine. Um, I know lots of folks are starting to talk about that. And this is circadian, someone who studies circadian physiology and does a lot of research in this area. I'm obviously thrilled, um, but that also is a, is a really important component, um, to, you know, ensuring you can fall asleep at a stable time each night, you know, really begins with, you know, viewing uh, sunlight in the morning. So, you know, five to 20 minutes within waking up you know, for five to 10 minutes, um, you know, should do the trick, but that gets the cortisol going. Um, and you really want kind of that cortisol mel melatonin, which kind of the, the, the hormones that bookend the day, um, you know, your, your day, you want those really firing on all cylinders because um, they kind of set you up your, your body, set your body up for um, operating efficiently. Okay. So when you, you had mentioned alcohol, mm. so this is another issue as well. I think that a lot of women think that it helps you sleep because they might fall asleep or pass out quicker but mm. then what does that do to our our sleep cycle our sleep architecture mm. yeah well it would definitely impact that you know initial bolus of of human growth hormone right um and, and just be, and basically you end up um revving really high throughout sleep so while you might be unconscious you might be passed out and you're kind of thinking that you, you're getting good sleep you're actually not getting into these deeper stages of sleep you'll end up with a very fragmented sleep experience you want your sleep to be really you know you kind of want this really nice flat um kind of uh, uh you know if you think about it from a data perspective you know you want your heart rate to be kind of really flat during sleep and you'll see alcohol sleep has a very uh very uh you know, kind of uh, typical signature in that you end up with a lot of kind of heart rate spikes. And those heart rate spikes basically mean that you're not getting into those deeper stages of sleep. So your ability to kind of restore and regenerate and do all the magical things that need to happen during sleep, um, they just don't, they simply don't happen when you are trying to metabolize alcohol. Okay. So what would your advice be then? Would you say maybe drink earlier in the day? Oh, well, for sure. You're away from sleep? No question. Yeah. So you want to, you want to drink Day drinking is is what I would recommend if you're gonna if you're gonna drink. <laughs> um, try to try to have like your final drink, you know, as far as from bed as possible, and just make sure you don't go to bed dehydrated. Uh, you know, that's another. So sipping water throughout the day can definitely help. Um, you know, trying to eat as cleanly as possible. You know, all the other levers uh, you want to try to try to pull um, to ensure that um, you know you're you're kind of offsetting some of the impact of of the alcohol. But you know, interestingly, we have this new feature called Stress Monitor, and it basically measures your stress in real time. And it's on a scale of zero to three. And when I really like when I was I was just traveling, I was in Geneva, I was all over the place, and. Um, I, no, I'm so sorry. I didn't turn my text message off. So apologize for if there's dinging. Um, so I, I was traveling a ton and, um, my stress, I basically average about, um, you know, 26 minutes in this kind of higher stress zone. So this is not activity strain. So nothing to do with my workouts. This is literally just, you know, I'm taking a call, I'm working, I'm just doing light activity around the house or whatever. So non-workout mm -hmm. kind of stress. 
Um, so I, I typically average about 26 minutes above a 2.0. Um, traveling, so traveling, you know, to Geneva and going to New York, waking up early, having a desynchronized circadian rhythm, kind of weird eating times. Um, I experienced 147 minutes of stress. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you think about like, so, so stress monitor is this kind of unbelievable, uh, I think, uh, piece of insight around how you're building stress versus, you know, your baseline versus kind of when things are, are wonky in your life. So I found it really insightful, but related to alcohol, um, you can actually see, so I was talking to our CTO today and she was like, this is crazy. I've been using stress monitor. So I'll have like a drink of a glass of red wine and it takes her four hours for her stress monitor to kind of go back under two 0.0. So she's kind of using it to see how long it takes her to metabolize alcohol, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of like a cool way to think about the feature. I was like, dang, that's so smart. Um, but it was funny because she's looking at how she metabolized, you know, tequila and some seltzer and a lime versus red wine. And um, yeah, and it, it's funny, the, the less sugar, the, the easier her body deals with it, which is, which is pretty typical. We've, we've seen that before, but yeah, alcohol is pretty crushing. You know, oh, and this is, it's such the opposite from what Americans are, are kind of known to do. Like, especially back mm. east, it's super yeah. late dinners yeah. and alcohol really late. And then no wonder we're all feeling like garbage, you know, overall know. and not knowing why you're kind of having that. So I, and I love that stress feature. Monitor. Yeah. That's it's pretty incredible. cool. I think what happens too is like we just, with regard to alcohol and, and sleep debt, you know, you mentioned kind of wearing sleep as a badge, of, you know, sleep debt as a badge of honor. We, we actually can't perceive our own declines. And that's the benefit of data, frankly, is you can kind of see when that degradation is happening and what behaviors contribute to that degradation. Because it can kind of be like an insidious, like slow roll. You know, you notice your heart rate variability drops by, you know, four milliseconds or whatever, which is actually clinically kind of significant, but you know, it drops a, a couple milliseconds and then, um, and then you have, you know, your resting heart rate is kind of creeping up and, um, but you're just, you know, if you're not like inside your data like that, you just might not notice. Right. So, and as a result, you kind of have this adaptation to a lower level of performance. And that's what's happening with sleep debt which I think is, you know, kind of scary is that you just end up, you don't even know it, but cognitively and physically and even emotionally, we end up adapting to lower levels of performance. And alcohol, of course, contributes to that because it's going to disrupt your sleep in some way. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's, that's kind of a, a scary reality with, with sleep debt that comes with sleep debt. So would you say that, uh, I mean, I, I only train women for like nearing 40 and beyond. Mm -hmm. So all of them are kind of, fitting into this perimenopause phase or postmenopause. And I don't know, I would say maybe one out of 10 females are getting great sleep and say that they, they can go to sleep easily, especially as we start to transition, you know, hormonally into these phases. Does that like, does taking anything to sleep, adaptogens or, you know, unisom, melatonin, do these affect the sleep-wake cycle or the overall quality of sleep? Yeah. So uh, adaptogens can be a wonderful way to, um, you know, they've been shown to obviously impact your stress and your anxiety levels and fatigue. Um, but I, I would definitely be careful with adaptogens because you can, they can kind of take you in the, in the wrong direction. So I, I'd be really thoughtful about, you know, integrating them slowly into, into your routine and using them, I think, to manage stress throughout, throughout the day. 
but I'd probably keep them away from your, you know, whenever you intend to sleep, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have them uh, toward, you know, toward uh, the end of the night. Um, there's, there are some uh, like a magnesium theanine and um, I, I would try to stay away from melatonin, like anything that your body, you know, produces endogenously, you want to be careful about supplementation. I mean, it's obviously I'm a PhD. I don't, you know, definitely talk to your doctor. Um, yeah. But, um, but I think it's, um, uh, melatonin has been shown to decrease sleep efficiency. We see this at population level um, with whoop data that it doesn't seem to have, it, it, it um, might help you fall asleep, but it's not going to help you get into deeper stages of sleep. It's not going to improve your sleep efficiency. So, um, so I'd be really, I'd be really careful um, with melatonin and, and I would, I would try to use other means to um, go to sleep and, and stay asleep. And, and these kind of circadian things that I outlined in terms of when, you know, we talked about light in the morning and then after the sun goes down, you really want to start restricting light. Mm -hmm. um, and that's another behavior that's really hard, but I think people don't realize we have not adapted to blue light. Yeah after the sun goes down as uh, human beings, right? And, and there's, we're not going to adapt at any time while we're, while we're alive. And it's going to be, if we ever do, it's, you know, thousands of years from now. So the fact is like our, our, you know, light is such a powerful mediator on, you know, every cell, organ and tissue in our body is just waiting for that light input to kind of know what in the holy heck to do. So if we're, if we're feeding light information at the wrong time, there's, all of your cells, tissues, and, and, and tissues and organs are, are getting this information and are not operating in the way that they need to or want to. Um, so I think that misalignment um, with, with light um, to relative to the natural light-dark cycle is, is one of the biggest problems with, um, I think, health in general. Like if you can fix your, your relationship with light, um, a lot of things are going to right itself, mm -hmm. starting with your sleep. You know, my kids all make fun of me because I wear the blue blocker glasses. I know, I know, they're, I know, I know. <laughs> I don't care. And then it, in the middle of the night, it's like so hard for me when I wake up, if I wake up and I want to so bad, like just check my phone and even yeah. see what time it is or anything. And I've had to learn to just be like, don't even pick it up. I know, I know. I know it's, you know, we, there's been some really interesting research on, um, on timing of light and mood and just on our neural circuitry. And, um, basically if we're viewing lights, um, in the retina for, you know, between the hours of 11 PM and 4 AM, it is pro depressive in that our dopamine system next day does not function as it should. It's, you know, so we wonder, oh, this mental health crisis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're like, we're, we're like doing, we're telling our body, we're giving our body misinformation. And so when we think about this from, you know, the impact on our hormones and, um, you know, all the symptoms that might come along with um, someone who's going through perimenopause or, you know, is, is in menopause, um, you know, the, the, the symptoms are going to be exasperated when our, our body doesn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. And when we're viewing light at a phase of the natural light dark cycle, our body doesn't feel safe. That's powerful. And it's just, and it's a reality, you know, and, and we want to make our, our body feel as safe as it can. And that means you have to give it the right inputs. Mm -hmm. So you need to time your meals. Like you eat when the sun is up, right? We shouldn't be eating for 15, 16, 17 hours of the day. 
And this is called time-restricted eating, which is very different than intermittent fasting, yeah. which everyone seems to get wrong. But intermittent fasting has a calorie kind of uh, involves calorie restriction. Time-restricted eating has a circadian component. component. Um, my body feels safe, lady. Some of these like things are like really funny. <laughs> These comments, I, I eat when I sleep. Um, yeah, so we really want to think about um, you know basically timing our meals um, to to the best of our ability. You know when the sun is up. That is when we're we're metabolically primed to um, you know to you know to to to, to use those nutrients. Um, and once the sun goes down, we're in a, in the inactive phase of our circadian rhythm. We're just not going to be as primed to metabolize. Um, and it, it could interfere with our sleep. So we really want to think about the timing of our food. Um, it's huge in terms of just thinking it from a safety perspective. Yes. I mean, and all of this kind of plays into women when they, you know, most, most women that I see are coming and they, they want a little bit of of fat loss, like they're frustrated because they're like, well, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not doing anything different. I might be hitting perimenopause and not really to change the, the direction of the conversation to go in over there, but sleep and the time restricted eating and all mm. of this poor sleep. Like you, you can't cheat the system. I think we've yeah. tried so hard to find quick ways for everything. And then yeah. it all keeps coming back to <laughs> you can't, these yeah, simple behavior. I mean, they're not, they're, they can be challenging, right? Like modernity is not really set up to kind of facilitate a lot of the things that we talked about or that we're talking about. But, but yeah, I mean the, you know, you led kind of with a question, like what's a non-negotiable kind of these circadian components, like getting a handle of your light relationship with light is mm -hmm. just so, so critical. Time restricted eating, stabilizing sleep, wake time, I mean, those three things will set you. If you're not doing those things, it's going to be really hard to move your body composition yeah. around. It's hard. Absolutely. It just makes it, you're basically, you're, you're going into a, a golf, you know, match, like 10 shots down. Like, it's just like you're, you're playing with one arm on your back. Like, it's just like there, you just put yourself at a, a huge disadvantage when, um, you know, when again, you know, your, your body is just having to work so hard to like maintain homeostasis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So is there a certain amount of like people are, are getting this data for sleep? Mm -hmm. Is there a certain amount of REM sleep mm. that we should get? Like, what does that, what does that ideal sleep pattern look like? Yeah. So, you know, roughly, I, I think most wearables are going to probably over-report or under-report um, sleep. Um, we're actually, we're very, very good at, 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 uh, sleep. We have, you know, there's a lot of independent validation that's gone on. So I can say that you probably want to spend about, you know, 40 to 45% of the time that you're in bed in deeper stages of sleep. Um, light sleep is really important. You want to, you know, you want to face, there's going to be these middle, you know, small kind of micro moments where you're awake and then you'll go to light sleep and REM and slow sleep and you're basically kind of cycle over the course of, of the night. Um, but yeah, I mean, you definitely want to have, um, you know, as consolidated a, a sleep experience as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would say 40 to 50% of your total time, you know, once you want to be in these deeper stages of sleep. Okay. So let's shift the conversation to something that I feel like is super fascinating. And a lot of women, again, when I pulled, did not know a lot about heart rate variability. What mm. is it? Why is it important? Mm. Let's yeah. start with that. Yeah, heart rate variability is the time interval kind of between your heartbeats. So the heart doesn't doesn't like beat on a metrodome. Like there's variation between heartbeats, 
And the more recovered, uh, the healthier your cardiovascular nervous system is, the more variability you'll experience kind of between heartbeats. Mm -hmm. So it's a function of the heart, but it originates in the autonomic nervous system. Your autonomic nervous system has two branches, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, and they're both competing to send signals to the heart. When you are healthy and recovered, your body is gonna, your heart is basically gonna be responsive to those signals um, in a way that's commensurate with the demands of the environment. Does that make sense? And so um, it, when you're under-recovered, under-slept, under-fueled, um, under-hydrated, um, you know, drinking alcohol, you're just, your body, you're, you're not going to be able to respond and adapt to your environment in a fu as functional a way as you would if you were really recovered. So heart rate variability is this unbelievable metric to basically tell you your capacity to adapt to external stress mental, physical, and emotional. So the more uh, recovered you are um, and you know, the healthier your autonomic nervous system and your heart, um, the more you'll be able to adapt to your environment. So it's, it's a great, it's, it's very nonspecific in the sense that a lot of things influence your heart rate variability. So if I were to drink alcohol, I'm gonna have a suppressed heart rate variability. Again, higher heart rate variability is better. Okay. Um, if I have, you know, a super, you know, uh, really bad fight with, uh, I don't know, uh, a coworker, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's just like got me like my brain is, you know, I'm just like sad or whatever, like that will manifest in your dominant nervous system and you'll have a lower or suppressed heart rate variability. Um, if I'm feeling psychologically amazing and, um, you know, I'm getting my sleep that I need, my heart variability is going to be higher. Okay. So, we're, so lots of things can affect it. Higher. Yeah. Higher is better. Higher is better. better. And it's all relative to your baseline. So I know lots of folks wonder, like, is my heart rate really good? And, you know, so when you come onto the platform and you, we start, you know, giving you this kind of summary measure of your, of your heart rate variability, it's basically just you against you. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, genetics, heart size, like all sorts of things, your age can, can impact heart rate variability. But once you have that baseline, it is modifiable, you know, and that's, I think, exciting is that you can improve your heart rate variability over time by, you know, putting together these behaviors that are going to increase your ability to adapt proactively to your environment. Do you, so when you look at the data and say somebody's tracking it and they're like, okay, I had a super low heart rate variability, like the overall trend this night, I probably had alcohol, mm -hmm. but then it was higher this night. It, is it, do you want a more like kind of steady or is it going to be up and down over yeah. healthy nights? Sleep. That's an awesome question. Yeah. You want to actually minimize the day-to-day -day variability. So um, it's better to have, and we call this heart variability coefficient. Mm -hmm. So it basically it's, it's kind of calculating um, the degree to which you vary your heart variability varies day-to-day -day is your HRVCV. Um, and, and that actually is a really great way to think about your adaptation. Um, so you're dead on, you want to limit that variability. And that means, you know, if you're, if I were to take like a population of like super healthy, super fit folks and a population of diseased and really unhealthy sedentary individuals, they'll have lots of fluctuation day to day in their heart rate variability where these like healthy, you know, lead athletes like wouldn't have that. So that's a, it's a really great way to, to, to understand how you're adapting to stress. Do you think that, does the data show that perimenopause and, and menopausal women have uh, higher or, or a lower mm. heart rate variability just as we age? We see, um, we start to see a degradation 
um, as periods get missed, um, heart rate variability and resting heart rate, um, the rhythm becomes less pronounced. So there is a degradation in, in these kind of cardiac um, measurements. So when you look at it and you wake up and, and your score is like, uh, I don't know, wasn't that great? Or all mm. of the data that you're, that you're looking at uh -huh. on your WHOOP app, would you like, if I had a hard training session that I had to do that was a few hours long and it was mm. gonna be really intense, what would be your advice uh, because I think the majority of women that I know or that I've trained uh, or that come to me, they're struggling that most of them are overtraining yeah. and they're just used to it, especially endurance athletes. They're like, I'm just going to keep, I have to go, go, go. And that usually ends up having, I mean, it, it doesn't help them in the long run. So what do you advise for that? Yeah. I mean, recovery is where the magic happens, you know, and, and, you know, any sports scientists you encounter these days, you know, who are working with, you know, the, the best soccer teams in the country and, and the football teams, LB and, you know, women's basketball and, you know, collegiate sports. I mean, they will, they are now really thinking about programming in a way that allows the athletes to um, recover appropriately. So, and, and all that is just time, you know, and, and I think we need to be way smarter about programming to make sure that we're building in, these recovery periods so we can so our, our body has time to respond to the stimulus that you just put on it right like you, you have to give your body time to respond so when we're training you know for consecutive days and we're not taking that requisite recovery your body doesn't get a chance to adapt to that stimulus and you lose those gains whatever the potential gains were are, are lost so um so recovery is absolutely absolutely essential um and i think uh and i think yeah i mean you know, women, when we think about the role of cortisol, right, and if we're overtraining, we're basically pumping our system with cortisol, and that leads to inflammation. That leads to, um, you know, the ability, the inability to fall asleep or that wake up at 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, getting the training piece right is, is, is critical for women um, who are in these, you know, in this kind of midlife, uh, you know, period of time. Yes, absolutely. So I was in a group of some trainers uh, mm -hmm. last week, actually, and someone brought this up about the heart rate variability and all of the data. Mm -hmm. And there was this interesting conversation about, is there a psychological component? Like if, the, mm -hmm. if it's saying like, you need a, you're not feeling great, you're like, oh, I'm not feeling great. <laughs> yeah, there's a belief effect there. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's no question that, um, yeah, we, we actually have for our, athletes on the platform so when they come on we have kind of the consumer uh platform and then we have like a uh you know kind of a an enterprise platform in the enterprise platform you can hide recovery for athletes oh. which is i think an awesome feature that we should probably offer to yeah. everyone right because there is there is a a psychological i think effect when you see red you're like Oh no, red is bad. And, yeah. and I think that's where, you know, looking at kind of your day-to-day -day variation can be really powerful. Cause a lot of times that tells you a little bit more than just that acute moment, right? Cause there, like I said, you know, heart variability, which is, you know, weighted the heaviest and the whoop recovery score, which has this, you know, color scheme to it, um, is, is really non-specific. So it can be, you can wake up just dehydrated, right. And be in the red and then get yourself back to where you need to be hydration wise and you would in theory be maybe at a 67%. So 
um, it kind of just gives you a, a snapshot in time. And it's, and I, you know, when I talk to teams and when I talk to folks and I'm consulting or around these things, I, you know, I say, don't worry too much about these acute fluctuations, mm-hmm. really think about it in the context of, you know, the, you know, what are you managing? You know, if, if you had alcohol that previous night and you were underhydrated and didn't sleep long enough, you like didn't meet your sleep need. Yeah. You're going to wake up with a red probably, right? That doesn't mean that you can't necessarily go out and perform. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can, and you, and you will like we're we, but, but if you basically, you know, if you're in a situation where you're getting, you know, three or four or five reds in a day uh, or in a, in a row, um, you know, that means that, okay, something actually isn't right and, and you need to intervene um, in, yeah. in some way and, and take stock of, of your behaviors and get yourself realigned. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely a psychological component, I think, that you kind of have to have a framework around. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So another hot topic right now is uh, the information, and there's been a lot of data, obviously, uh, recently that has come out kind of on both sides of the training around the menstrual cycle. Do you see heart rate variability? Like, do you see it change more during a woman's mm. cycle? Yeah, I mean, we have a, a lot of this data. And um, there's no question there are, you know, during, so if you think about the menstrual cycle, there's two primary phases. There's the follicular phase, um, which includes ovulation and menses, and the luteal phase, which is kind of the, the two weeks leading into, into menses. And, we see very pronounced changes in, in heart rate variability and resting heart rate during those, um, during those phases. So for women who menstruate, who have a natural cycle, um, we'll see higher heart rate variability, lower resting heart rate during the follicular phase and lower, uh, higher resting heart rate and lower heart rate variability during the luteal phase. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we do observe these really pronounced, uh, uh, changes in, in kind of, you know, the cardiac signature during, during these time periods. So um, that doesn't mean that I, I think all it really means is that, you know, you're, you're probably really primed to uh, make gains mm-hmm. uh, during the follicular phase. And, you know, luteal is more kind of a maintenance phase is kind of how I think about it. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean you can't make gains and it certainly doesn't mean you can't perform. Like you can PR, like you can do amazing things during your luteal phase, but just know that, you know, your body, it's a very effortful phase of the menstru- of the menstrual cycle of your menstrual cycle. Um, your body's, you know, doing all sorts of things. Um, you know, you have uh, higher levels of progesterone, like there's, uh, you know, which, um, you know, is going to make you not, uh, for example, um, it impacts your uh, sodium uptake, for example. So you want to actually have a little bit more sodium. Um, you need to have uh, some more carbohydrates during the luteal phase. Like there's just some things um there are things that you can do, I suppose, to kind of offset, uh, you know, some of the things that are happening physiologically during that luteal phase um, that can position you to maintain performance levels, I think. This is so fascinating. So somebody had sent me a question about any, is there any data on post-COVID or long COVID where heart rate variability is much lower and any thoughts on being able to help it bounce back. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I don't know. We haven't done any, any research on long COVID. Um, we definitely see um, heart rate variability and, and heart rate rebound um, in younger folks, um, but not so well in folks over 50. Okay, interesting. 
I figured yeah. you would have some data for sure. Yeah, we have, we have some data. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, COVID is tough. You know, it's a slower respiratory tract infection. Um, you know, and I think folks who are on the platform, you know, I think the interesting marker to track is, is the, the inter- interesting biometric to track, a biomarker to track is, is respiratory rate. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of the, the canary in the coal mine in, in, um, during COVID, you know, and that we would see these really egregious spikes in respiratory rate that were, um, were predictive of, of COVID. So we could just, we actually built a, a COVID algorithm that was, that could predict COVID 80% accurately three days prior to symptom onset. No Which way. Is like bananas, right? Yeah. It's like super cool. Um, so, you know, three days before you even felt sick, like we would, you know, you'd get the spike in respiratory, in your respiratory rate. Um, so what, that's another marker that we see does not get back to baseline um, for quite some time after, after COVID. So even though you feel fine, you know, your respiratory rate is, in fa- is, is impacted and, and you, know, you, you know, your heart rate variability and, and resting heart rate. Um, are, are don't b- bounce back for, for a while. So um, it definitely takes time. Yeah. Yes. It's a oh, great question. So, so interesting. Yeah. So would you say that heart rate variability is the most important factor or the resting heart rate, or is it a combination mm. of these? Yeah. I mean, the combination is really important. Um, you know, I mean, your, your heart rate, your resting heart Heart rate, I think, is a is an awesome proxy for your just overall fitness level, and and I think heart rate variability. You can think about it as a proxy for uh, you know how how well you can adapt to external stress. So it's really about your capacity to adapt. I think is is the best way to think about heart rate variability. And I think in in combination, um, they're they're really powerful. You know, together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I would say that. Um, you know, resting heart rate is, is going to give you definitely a different set of insights um, than heart rate variability. I think that's important to know. Um, you know, heart rate variability, like I said, is, is pretty nonspecific, as is heart rate to heart. A lot of the things are going to impact your resting heart rate. It could be overtraining. It could be, you know, w- what you're eating. Uh, it could be hydration. It could be, um, you know, a challenging psychological time for you. Um, so there's lots of things that can move both of those metrics around. Um, I would say heart rate variability is probably a little bit more sensitive to some of those other, some of those inputs that I mentioned. Um, but it, it definitely worth, worth tracking both for sure. If you want to kind of understand the trajectory of your health. Yes, absolutely. So I know a lot of women talk, well, another question that, that comes up a lot is you kind of touched on it with the time restricted eating and the intermittent fasting. Do you advise fasted training, do you think that that changes the information or the data that you're going to get from this or Mm. just in your overall recovery? Um, I I mean, that's kind of a big question with a lot of different variables, but fasted training. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd say high level, um, you want to have energy to work out, right? Like you're, you're not going to make, you're not going to lose faster when you're training fasted. Like you really want to think about it from an energy availability standpoint. Mm -hmm. Like you do not want to train when you're low energy, like there's nothing that feels worse than that, you know, and you need carbohydrates, you know, to, to fuel your workouts. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you have glucose, you know, glycogen available, then yeah, you can, you don't need to eat necessarily, but, um, but I'm really a fan of fueling for your activity requirement. Um, so if I want to lift weights, if I want to, um, you know, do a hard track workout, like I'm going to go fueled, um, for sure. Um, because I think too, like you don't make 
the same sort of gains, right? When you're training in a low energy, when you're training in a deficit, um, you're just not going to be able to work and push your body as hard. Um, And your perception of your fatigue is going to increase as well. So you're just literally not putting the same kind of effort into your workout as if, you know, if you went fueled. So I think being fueled is, is really important for women. And again, when you go back to, does my body feel safe? right? Like I'm already putting it through a workout. I'm taxing it. And this obviously is puzzle formatic effect. Like it's a wonderful thing, right? Working out is so good. But if you're combining that in a low, you're working out and you're in a low energy state, you're getting all the wrong effects. Mm -hmm. Um, You're putting your body under enormous stress. Um, And I think a lot of gains that you might've made during that workout go unrealized because of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, hear that ladies? I know. I hope that everyone's listening up. (laughs) I know. Because a lot of what happens is like, it it ends up manifesting in your sleep. Like that's what people don't understand. We talked about the relationship between that 2am wake up Mm -hmm. and that fragmented sleep. You can't go back to sleep. That is because there's a mismanagement of cortisol during the day. Right. So, yeah. So I think, I don't think people often make that association, but I, I think once we start to understand that we, we train very differently, feel very differently. We were more proactive about our, our, our management of stress. Um, so yeah, I think it's a big piece to the puzzle. Fuel for the demands of training. I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as far as I saw this on your Instagram and it, it, it I'm so curious about it. The taping your mouth mm-hmm. for sleep. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, I actually, I just did a podcast with James Nestor who wrote the book, Breathe. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. Another great book about breathing, nasal breathing specifically, then how important it is for kind of overall health and and wellness is Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McEwen. Uh, Both are incredible, but yeah, you improve when you tape your mouth, like you want to be able to breathe through your nose. It's Mm -hmm. like so critical for, um, oxygen uptake and, and circulation, um, you know, have your diaphragm working properly. Uh, there's so many, you know, your arteries, your veins, nerves, like you increase the airflow to all of those um, things. Like just even aesthetically, like your face, um, when you're, when you're breathing through your nose versus your mouth uh, changes. So um, you definitely want to uh, become accustomed to breathing through your mouth, uh, through breathing through your nose a majority of the time. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the techniques that um, folks like Nestor and uh, Patrick McEwen and, and dentists um, are really getting on, on the bandwagon too are recommending, because it really does impact, you know, folks who breathe through their mouth are more prone to cavities and have way more um, kind of oral, like a dentist can tell a mouth breather versus a nose breather. Wow. Isn't that insane? So, yeah. So sleep, obviously, you know, you're sleeping for eight hours, you know, um, a night roughly, hopefully. Um, and, you know, if you spend that whole time with your mouth open, uh, that's, that's a problem. So uh, taping your mouth and learning to um, breathe through your nose is, is really important. And for kids, too, um, it's so, so critical. Um, you know, just even when they're doing their homework or they're watching TV or playing video games, like, tape their mouth if, if they're a mouth breather. And you can basically tell, like, they're either, if they're just sitting there and you can see, you know, or your spouse or your boyfriend, like, if they're sitting there and they've got their mouth open, like, okay, wait, we need to start taping <laughs> um, to just train that muscle. Yeah. I think, too, like, when you're doing your zone two work or, um, you know, just a light workout or just going for a walk, close your mouth. Um, so yeah, a huge, huge believer um, after reading those two books and, and definitely my interview with James Nestor, I was like, 
shit. Like <laughs> this is like yeah. the so important. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna go get the book tonight. I'm it's, so it and... it's so good. It's so good. I'm wait. telling you, it's it's like it's really really good. Um, and, and Patrick McEwen's book too, The Oxygen Advantage, also is really really good. Nestor's kind of reads more like a story. There's a more of kind of an evolutionary anthropological uh, kind of component to it, Uh, but they're both fascinating and so, so good. Okay. I'm going to read those Mm. and I'm going to walk around and see my kids. (laughs) I know you need to, I know you need to get them to close the mouth. Yeah. So great. Okay. So I'm going to get you off really quick here. We are almost out of time. What, how, so for people that are like, okay, got it. This sounds amazing. Um, you know, a bunch of people have asked me since I've had, mm-hmm. I announced having you on, well, you know, what's the difference between the aura ring and the whoop? I'm sure they both have their own kind of, but like, is there a, a big difference? Does it, is it kind of doing the same thing? Yeah. Well, aura form factor for sure. You know, aura obviously is a ring and whoop is, you know, uh, a, a wrist worn device. Um, that said, you can put it, uh, in your bralette, you can put it in your, uh, your boxer shorts. So you can wear it in different locations. You can put it in your forearm and your, your bicep. So, um, we have really good reliability in all those spots. Um, so in, in September, 2022, so this, uh, just this past fall, um, a validation study was published and and basically was commissioned by the Australia Institute of Sport. And I think I saw Dean Miller come in. Um, He was actually one of the authors on the study. And basically it looked at um, Apple, Aura, Garmin, Polar, and Somfit, and Whoop. Somfit we don't really care about. It's like a different technology. But um, but Whoop performed the best. Um, uh, And it, it actually wasn't even close. I think our the heart rate and heart rate variability with had like near perfect interclass correlations of like 0.99 on like both metrics. Um, and I think the next uh, best performing was polar polar. And it had an interclass correlation of 0.93 for heart rate and 0.65 for heart rate variability. So these bottom line and like these devices, like literally are not even close. <laughs> and, and in fact, you know, you got whoop and then you have polar and then, you know, Garmin, or, uh, I mean, it's literally like noise. So I, I think when you think about like, you've got the underlying data that is, um, you know, f- like basically fueling these ag- algorithms, like needs to be good. Right. Mm-hmm. So if the, if the, if the data isn't sound, um, you know, it's just basically shit on top of shit really. Um, and, and I don't know how good the insight is honestly, when you've got those kind of, um, you know, discrepancies, but well, I, I love the whoop. I think it, I, it's so sleek and it's designed. Like it just looks really cool yeah. and light. And I mean, I'm I'm a fan. I think they did a really great job on just the design. I, yeah, I've been a garment yeah. wearer, you know, for cycling and triathlon and all of that. But uh, yeah. you know, that's kind of like. Oh, I would still maybe I would still use that for my workouts. But I mean, I wouldn't really trust it for anything outside of workouts. Yeah. Yeah. Some, I think some of those devices are, are exceptional for, for workouts, but yeah, I mean, I think what whoop has done is really, you know, we uh, we're really great at capturing this 24 seven picture and, and that's, and, and so much of what informs your training is, is what you're doing outside of your training, right? It's the other 20, 21, 22 hours of the day that you're not training that you need to get a handle on, right? Like if you want to show up with capacity for whatever it is you're trying to perform at, 
you know, you need to understand how you're sleeping and how you're adapting and, you know, how am I getting enough rest relative to the amount of load I'm putting on, on my body, you know, both neuromuscularly and, and cardiovascularly. And, um, you know, is my nervous system adapting? Like these things are, I think are really important questions and we've never been better positioned, um, to actually understand, you know, one, one's health, you know, and it's kind of an exciting time. Like we don't need to really guess anymore because these data are very good. Um, so yeah. That's fascinating. So it's really like a, a, your pers a personal coach. That yeah. Have. Yeah. I mean, we're working every day <laughs> to try to, um, you know, feed the coaching engine. We've got, um, a really exciting study coming up, looking at time restricted eating actually. So, Anyone who's on WHOOP is going to be able to join. Um, we're hoping to get just a massive, a lot of participation, and you're going to get kind of put into, you know, you can do an eight-hour feeding window, 10-hour and 12, or 12-hour. 12 it's just a four-week study, and, you know, we're going to have 100 folks in kind of in each group get a, get a CGM, um, so for free. So, we're, yeah, so it should be really cool, um, just randomly selected. Um, yeah. But we're really excited to look at, um, you know, what are some of these behaviors, you know, time-restricted eating, we've, you know, studied sleep-wake time a ton, so I think we have a really clear understanding. But, you know, what are some of these behaviors that can kind of help feed um, our, our coaching engine, right, and be able to give you, like, super prescriptive insight into, okay, these are the data, and this is how you're trending, this is how you're sleeping, um, this is, you know, your, your heart rate variability. What are some of the behaviors that you can adopt that will help push you in the best possible direction. Um, so we're really excited about a lot of the stuff that's coming through on the coaching side. All right, whoop wins <laughs> it, ladies. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, Kristen, this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for joining. I am um, thrilled to have you. This was such an interesting conversation. And I love now that more women can know about these this awesome product and hopefully, yeah. you know, have it help them. And we live in a fascinating time. So I just love it. I know. Well, so thanks exciting. for all the good work that you do educating women yeah. and, uh, yeah. And, and bringing all this good information. Perfect. Well, thank, thank you so much. I hope you have a great evening. It's probably yeah. close to your bedtime. So I know it's like, I turn into a pumpkin in eight minutes. So you ended just in time. <laughs> all right. Have a great night. Thank you so much, Kristen. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. You take Bye. care. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and sharing the body pod with your friends. Until next time.